From Content360, this is the state of client acquisition. Welcome to the state of client acquisition. This is your host, Michael Bohannes. And in today's episode, I wanted to share my time travel back to my old self four and a half years ago. And what do I mean by that? I started my business some four and a half years ago and you always think about these things. What would I have done differently? So given that I recently reached a really nice revenue milestone, I finally got through to these 20 to 30K months, notably in March, I'm in 29K. And so I wanted to reflect on how could I have done this faster because it took me quite a while to get there for many different professional and personal reasons. I'm not gonna bore you with that, but I was thinking what would I have done differently if I could go back in time and apply my learnings. So I'm gonna be sharing five main lessons with you and I hope that some of them will be applicable to you and without further ado, let's get right into this week's episode. So today on top of the show, I would like to talk a little bit about a personal topic, and that is my journey to 29K months, which I reached last month, which is March 2021. And that's a big deal for me. I was always looking forward to hitting those 20 to 30K months. And uh, just for perspective, I started my business back in 2016 and I was at uh, $4,000 on average for the first one and a half years. So there was a really slow start. I made a lot of mistakes there and I wanted to share five lessons. If I could do this famous time travel back to my younger self, what would be the five, seven lessons that I would give myself and what kind of advice would I impart to myself? So. I think many of them will be useful to you as well, wherever you are in your business, especially when you are starting out, when you are below $10,000 on average per month. Some of them might be really useful because they will be on the unusual side. I have Some of them I have not heard from other people. So those are really unique learnings. Okay, so lesson number one is, do you have a business or are you just doing gigs? I divide my business between the amateur period and the pro period. The amateur period lasted until August 2018 and after that I turned pro. And what was what was the big difference? Well in August 2018 I stopped all my side hustles and I focused on one thing only. That was the main thing Content360 my business. Before that I was doing to making two mistakes. I was engaging in too many side hustles and I was doing, I was being a jack of all trades. I was doing all kinds of work, which was um, simply not building a core skill, not solving a key business problem for my clients. So I was doing all kinds of random things. And the problem with this is, of course, that I'm not building a core skill. I'm not getting better at anything in particular. I was a generalist and I was being paid accordingly. So the lesson is, do you have an actual business? Are you building towards something? And the main distinguishing factor here is whether you are solving one particular difficult, complex problem. Like now I have a business and I can tell by knowing that I'm solving the one main thing, which is helping clients and uh, helping uh, consultants and coaches and small B2B companies to get clients on LinkedIn. That is a huge problem, right? As many LinkedIn coaches as there are, 
This is a massive problem. Most people don't know how to do that even remotely. They only go by their network. They, they try to get referrals, but they try to they dabble with content, but they don't know how to do it in a systematic way. So I'm helping them solve that. And I'm getting better at this every week, every month. I'm getting a little bit better at it. So this is now I'm having a business. Before then, I was doing super diverse things, anything from creating Excel models for a startup's growth plan so that they could pitch to investors to writing and designing a white paper on employee mobility. You know, it was as wide as that. So that is the lesson number one. Do you have a business or are you just doing gigs? So what would I do differently? I would say think from a problem standpoint. What problem can I help people solve and then actively pursue those types of clients? And of course, I might have to accept a couple of gigs here and there as long as I needed the cash. That's fine. When you are building a business, it's like when you're becoming an actor and you are a barista at Starbucks for a while. As long as it's not permanent, as long as you're only doing this to reach the next level and you're actively learning, then it's fine. So accept gigs only as long as you need the cash. So that was lesson number one. Do you have a business or are you just doing gigs? Lesson number two is... Friends are great, but your network is worth less than you think. I recently ran the numbers on my revenue from those first two years where I was making very little. I was doing all kinds of side hustles and I was mainly getting work via my network and my friends. And the most interesting statistic that I found was that 80% of my then revenue came from my friends and 20% from my wider network, people who happen to know me, who reached out to me because they know what I'm doing. And that was really interesting. It's again, it's the Pareto principle, right? The 80-20 rule. 80% of my revenue came from a handful of close friends and the, the rest was uh, peanuts. Because I had always thought that having a strong network and being chummy with a lot of people and being known by many people will guarantee me business for a long time. And I believe that is a fallacy. Now with the power of hindsight, yes, having close friends is great and they will really help you if they are in decision-making positions. So because I had been at London Business School, because I had worked at Google and I was quite ensconced in the London startup community, many of my friends were CEOs, senior people in companies who could hand business my way. So from that point of view, it's great. And yes, in that case, it's really you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with because my closest, all I just looked at this, all of my closest four or five friends in London uh, through work my way. And it's not because they just kind of in some way um, wanted to do me a favor. It was just that they knew that I'm good. They knew what I can do. And so whenever something came up, I was one of the first people for them to think about. So that was lesson number two. Friends are great, but your network is worth less than you think. And so what would I specifically do differently? If you find yourself in this position where you are starting out and you're leveraging your network, I really would strongly recommend you that you go into the wild market out there. And that's going to be one of my later lessons is that people are going to buy from you, even if they don't know you, as long as you address a real problem that they have. They don't need to know you. It's really interesting. So what would I do differently now in the context of the network? Yes, leverage the network by all means. So what I would do is I would make a list of my 50 closest friends and acquaintances 
who are in some kind of an influential position. They run a business or are senior in a corporate position. I would write them a concise email of what I do. And crucially, I would then add three personalized bullet points on how my new work could help them, specifically to them. I would really think about it. I would spend 20, maybe even 30 minutes per email to think. And that would probably take me a whole week. You know, it's good to cultivate those relationships, especially in a personalized way. So that's the, the kind of the inner circle of 50 people. And then to everyone else that I know, and that could be, you know, as many as a thousand people, it would probably be worth to collect their email addresses to do it all as a as a mailing or just drip it out. To everyone else, I would send a well-crafted email informing them what I do and replacing the three customized bullet points with three ideal case scenarios where I can help someone. Just so that they know if somebody has that kind of problem, then reach out to Michael. And Probably in total, I would spend two, three weeks on this. And after that, the network is done. I'm not going to be, unless of course somebody crosses my path, of course, I would always try to kind of leverage that relationship, but then I would not expect anything further from my network. Last point on the network point, a lot of additional leverage from your network will come via your content. If you focus on publishing quality content consistently, that's going to activate your old network in a nice passive way where you don't need to do anything extra. So in summary, this whole topic of the network is really focus on your friends, write them a couple of customized email, tell them what you do. Uh, the rest of the network deserves a mass email and then create consistent content on the relevant social networks where your audience can be found. Okay, lesson number three is focus on getting market validation quickly. One of the pivotal points in my business was in the early days of December 2019 when I signed my first two coaching clients on two consecutive days. One came via content and the other one via cold outbound, but they were completely cold. They didn't know me. There was no network connection and so on. One was an ex-Googler, so I was able to reference that in my message to him. And both of them, they didn't know me, they paid after a one-hour call and they signed up to a coaching program that I hadn't even built at the time. This was properly mind-blowing to me. Two strangers who run a business and they pay me on the call after talking to me for one hour. So this just gives you the kind of the, the look of what is possible. And these two strangers made me more money in two days than probably 99% of my London network that I had cultivated over the last 12 years combined. Crazy numbers there. And the reason why this is so is because I had found product market fit. I had a recipe to help these two guys to get clients on LinkedIn, to leverage the platform optimally and to teach them how to do it themselves and to also leverage their team how to do it. And with this, I had found the way in. So you really don't need a strong network. It helps, of course, but you don't need a strong network to sell something that the market needs. So what would I do differently if I could go back in time? I would really focus on finding that formula that will get strangers to pay you. And the best way to do it is to get relevant people on the phone and run them through a structured process where you ask them about their problem 
And if they indicate that indeed the problem is there and they would be willing to invest, make them an offer. It's really as simple as that. So specifically what I would do differently if I could go back in time, I would start 50 plus conversations on LinkedIn or Facebook with people who seem to be the right target audience. And I would get them on the phone and ask them questions about their pain points that I can help them solve. And if they have them, make them an offer to solve them. And adjusting my offering based on the feedback that I got was, especially now, really mission critical. So I had a couple of calls before that. They didn't go anywhere. I adjusted my approach. Boom. Product market fit. People paid on the call. So that was lesson number three. Get market validation really quickly. And that piggybacks, and this is not a huge lesson, but it's just like, oh my God, I could I have been that silly? Uh, let's call it lesson number three B, so to speak, is don't waste your time building an elaborate website. Okay, it's really you need a one page website that you can build in Wix in half a day or have somebody to do that for you. Just simply put up a website that states a value proposition, a quick video where you explain what you do and a link to book a call. The more you have, of course, in terms of if you have a couple of blog posts, maybe some client testimonials, sure, put that on there. That's fine. But do not spend more than one, okay, one day crafting a website. If you have somebody else built it for you, one day. If you need to build it yourself, all right, fine. Just spend two, three days, really not more, because the stuff will change so much. Believe me on this. I had, there's nothing, I even recently, because I I started a new website, michaelbohannes.com, and I still had my old content360.com website, and if I recently just shut it down and I wanted to download it, download the content, but honestly, it's just I've moved on so fast that I just didn't want to bother with the hassle of having to download it. And there's some awkward, very techy stuff that I wouldn't have known how to do. I just dropped that. And so it's really spending so much time on the website as I did. And I think it's, it took me easily two months of faffing around. And I did like I drew cartoons for the website and so on. It was it was pure, pure wrongness. So I strongly recommend that you don't spend much time on your website. That's that's point three B. Get market validation. That's the main point. All right. Lesson four is eliminate side hustles. And I know many people will not agree with this, but that's fine because this is my podcast, so I'm telling you what I think. But side hustles are absolute poison. Just to give you an idea, I fully, I cannot believe I'm, <laughs> I cannot believe I actually did that. I started my business in late 2016 and in a April or May, no, in, in March or April 2017, I agreed to be an entrepreneur in residence for two months in Albania. I was there in order to advise local businesses. And it was an interesting experience. I enjoyed it and I met some really nice people there. But gosh, why do I spend two months being an entrepreneur in residence in Albania? It's completely random. So instead, what I totally should have done is to say no to everything coming my way and to focus on the business. Because anything you do as a side hustle that is distracting you from the main mission is going to keep you away from reaching those $29,000 months. I could absolutely have reached this within six months of starting the business. And it honestly it was my goal. I wanted, of course, to make a lot of money. But I was just so distracted with all kinds of random other stuff. 
that I just didn't take the time to to really explore and to build the skills that I needed to to grow the business. So I'm not against side hustles, by the way, when you still have a job. That is really a good idea to validate an idea that you have for a business, to get some initial traction, to get a little bit of proof. That's fine, especially when you have larger financial responsibilities like you have a family. Of course, do a side hustle next to a job. But as you are starting out a business, splitting your attention into different things. And Albania was only one part. I also started working with a guy who was uh, doing some stuff in crypto. Yes, indeed, I spent five hours a week doing some kind of random crypto stuff that never got me anything. And I barely learned anything about it because it's such an obscure uh, industry. So the reason why as you're starting out, splitting your attention is such a bad idea is because you stifle the learning in the most important area that you work in. Second, there's a huge opportunity cost because focus breeds compound interest. If you focus on one thing and exclusively, you accelerate at an ever increasing rate. I'm seeing this now. I'm getting always better, always better. And suddenly like opportunities come my way. I'm closing deals left, right and center. And that is because I'm really focused on now on what I'm doing. Then third, the reason why splitting your attention is a bad idea is that you signal to, and that is so key, it's so, such a key mindset lesson. You signal to your mind that you're not fully bought in. It's like you are not committing to a partner. You are just, you know, cruising and dabbling in all kinds of different things. And by not signaling to your mind that you're committed, you are unable to make this into a flourishing relationship with you and the business. So the mindset component is probably the strongest of them all. And finally, you also by doing side hustles and doing all kinds of things, you also signal to the world that being a jack of all trades is your thing and you will get paid accordingly. Or you always will get this skeptical look when, when you are applying for some kind of gig and you don't really have a strong track record in this area. You just have generally, yeah, you're a smart person, you come across well, but you don't really have expertise in that. So yeah, not a good idea to do any side hustle. And if, if what I'm telling you does not convince you, just think of all the people who diversify their income streams at when they're starting out a business, how many do you know who are broke? And how many really are bona fide millionaires? And now think about all the people who you know, could be anyone you know, but also, you know, semi-celebrities. How many of them advocate focus? And out of those who advocate focus, how many of them are broke? And how many are millionaires? I bet you I don't have any data, I haven't done a research on it, but I keep hearing from very successful people, focus. It really is true. And finally, there's a good, good reason for saying the man who chases two rabbits catches none. It is absolutely true. And a business is like a romantic relationship. It's disrespectful and immature if you don't go exclusive. So that is lesson number four, eliminate side hustles. And what I would do differently is simple. Just drop everything else that I was doing and focus on that one thing. And final lesson number five is design the business in a way that opens it for later scalability. 
that's a thing I more or less did right, although I, of course, was the jack of all trades. I was doing too many different things. But I, because of this uh, gen generalism that I was engaged in, I could have done it a lot faster if I had focused more. But in principle, it was right. I was focusing on content marketing. So when I started, I was selling one core skill, and that was writing. I'm decently good at it. But the problem with writing is there's a cap on earnings. Even the top 1% of content writers out there rarely make more than $100 an hour. And they're almost always sector specialists. They're medical copywriters. They are finance experts and so on. So it's really difficult to get past that with just writing. But because I frame my business as content marketing, writing was only the entry wedge. I knew that as I was gaining experience, I would soon work my way up the value chain to also run projects. And then I could also go beyond executing and just do um, coaching work. So that worked quite nicely. And the reason that I was able to transition into coaching quite seamlessly was because I did work up skills in the content marketing space. I knew how to get clients on LinkedIn. I knew how to write good lead magnets and uh, how to promote them on social media. So that is fine. But of course, I could have done it much faster if I hadn't been so unfocused. And so this has worked reasonably well. After one year of just writing and three years of doing projects, I was then able to uh, close my last done for you client in May 2020 and I was been I have been focusing on coaching ever since. So as you are creating your business always think how will you then scale it so that you don't have to constantly do the work. Is there a cap on your hourly earnings if you purely base your business on let's say copywriting or any other kind of skill like that even coding even uh, design, there needs to be an element that you can scale this. Yes, you can scale it by creating an agency around it, but that's hard, you know, to, to just have a design agency. Yeah, that's, that's great as a business, but it's so much better, so much more scalable and so much more profitable to have a scalable course and group coaching program. So that would be my last lesson and one that one of the five that I actually did right. Peter, how are you doing tonight, today, wherever you are? Where are you? I'm uh, based in uh, the States, um, so about lunchtime right now. Cool, about lunchtime, awesome. Good stuff. Well, Peter, you uh, approached me on LinkedIn. You asked a question as far as pitch slapping is concerned, and I wanted to cover that question first because I really liked it. It, had, it made a lot of sense in the context of my post. So just to give a little bit of... Um, context to my post it was about it was a survey that I had made about pitch slapping because I was wondering there is this hypothesis in the world of LinkedIn prospecting that when you pitch slap people when you just start a conversation and you just present people with an offer that you are burning future bridges right so that there are simply not enough people in the world and there are enough people in the world but when you just go and spray and pray people with your offer that all of those people who will say no to you then the relationship will have been burned and i myself used to propagate this message this thesis quite considerably i was very much in favor of that and then i actually thought well it's it's a little bit like 
conventional wisdom here and I wanted to put it to the test. I wanted to see if this was actually true. And uh, then I ran this poll and I asked, hey, is this really like that? If somebody pitch slaps you, sends you an offer right after connecting, would you then, assuming that you then see them posting relevant content, quality content, and they approach you then in another way, more personable, would you hold their initial pitch slap against them? Or would you probably most likely have forgotten about it, right? And I was very surprised about the result. There's some 220 people, I believe, by now responded. They took the poll. And the results are 65% of people say either that they would have forgotten or that they would forgive them for the initial pitch slap. And only some 25% or so said that they would hold it against them and never do business with them. And 10% said something else. And I found that really interesting because it absolutely disproved my hypothesis. I'm, of course, against pitch slapping per se, but I see I cannot use the argument anymore that says you cannot do this. You cannot do the pitch slap because people will resent you long term. That simply is not true. And especially with the type of approach that I recommend on uh, LinkedIn, which is very much it's still kind of goal oriented, but it's not a pitch. So what I recommend is that you start a conversation and you ask a question and that can be automated to a point, especially the first question. It's okay to answer to ask that you will not get a huge amount of responses, maybe 10%, but still that helps you to qualify out the people who are most likely to be working with you because they will answer and they will respond to you in the first place. So that is the preamble to your question, Peter. Would you like to quickly rephrase it the way you asked me? Uh, yeah, I just wanted to see if you were to lead in with um, not just the question that you were talking about, but really about you know the industry problem. So being able to lead up front with industry expertise and a, and a problem that really sets the stage for the rest of the conversation. So more problem-centric, more, you know, problem oriented, um, but then with that question. So asking an illuminating question and then getting right into the problem. Um. Yeah, exactly. So I think that is a very good approach. The one thing that is really important that you don't forget as you are doing this is that you need to build initial rapport. And there it's really key that you do something that is not immediately talking about business and especially about the area of business where you are in. So I have these three phases in a LinkedIn conversation that will most likely get you to, to book a call. And just to give you a bit of an impression of numbers. So when I do this completely personalized manual, zero automation used, then I have a 52% response rate. Then a 33% of the conversations then turn into business conversations. And about 10% of the total first messages sent turn into a call somewhere between eight and 10%, eight and 12, somewhere in that, in that ballpark. And I have, I've only met one person who slightly is better than that, but he does a slightly different approach, but it is, those are pretty good numbers. So I, I would claim that probably this, given this personalized approach is probably top of the market out there. So, Okay, so to your question, problem, should we go into problem exploration? The process is the following. First, build rapport, then do an exploration and really go into the topic of uh, where they have a problem in their business. 
And then once you see that they have a problem in their business that you might be able to help them with, suggest a call using the words, hey, this sounds like something that I might be able to help you with. Would you like to jump on a quick 15-minute call to explore? This is how you get a stranger to a call, right? It's only say very humbly saying it might be something I might be able to help you with. And then you offer a very quick low commitment exploration call. If you are in a industry such as mine that is very dominated by by rogue players I sometimes also mention that hey I'm not gonna definitely gonna pitch you in this call I just want to explore a little bit so I'm gonna say no pitching promised and a smiley face okay so that is the stage rapport exploration and then close and during the exploration phase it's absolutely okay to dig into the uh, the problem that they might have and final word on this is that when you say problem, Peter, I hope you meant that like problem that they may experience. So for example, in my space, what I do is uh, I help people to find clients on LinkedIn. And so I ask them something about, hey, I looked at your business, looks great. looks really interesting what you're doing there. I saw the testimonial, so you obviously know what you're doing. You've been doing this for only seven months. Are you still using your network or are you already getting clients via different methods, right? So I'm opening up the conversation in a broad way. I signal to them that I care about what they um, what they have to say. I care about what they are doing. And so I'm personalizing and I'm not just asking a templated question. And I give them a small compliment about it, right? And so this is then the part where you can get into, into problem exploration. So what I definitely recommend against, and I see many people doing this, especially some of my clients who come in and kind of want to wax lyrical about their industry. So, hey, so what do you think? Does the interest rate change impact uh, the global housing market and especially London residential real estate? You know, that is like, ugh. you know, who are you? Why should I even talk to you about this? These kind of problem questions that are so global, like the macro problem question, I really recommend against them because few people will probably engage, especially few people who are successful, busy, who you want to have as clients, they will not engage most likely. And uh, you may then kind of burn that relationship. If they don't respond, then, then they will also not respond later. So you kind of have one shot here. Okay, cool. Does that make sense, Peter? Yeah, sounds good. Awesome, good stuff. And then finally, a young gentleman who goes by the name of Success Hezekiah is asking, how do I build a personal brand on LinkedIn? And he's a young guy. He's a high school student who wants to get into marketing, social media marketing and so on. So he's asking, how can he build a personal brand? And the answer is useful to him, but also to anyone who is more or less starting out on LinkedIn only have a couple of hundred connections and you just want to make a name for yourself in one particular area, The especially in the beginning, just be useful. Don't think much about a personal brand. Just provide valuable information and be out there, connect with other people, comment on their content and start to begin and start to be known for something. Like this guy knows a lot about lead generation. This guy knows a lot about Twitter marketing. Like have one small slice that you occupy that you know more than 90% of other people and then slowly work your way up there so that you know more than 99%. 
Once you have done this for a couple of months, I would, then I would recommend that you start with getting a couple of graphic elements in place. I mean, if you can do it right up front, that's, that helps, of course, but don't worry too much about it in the beginning. And what I mean with graphic elements, just have a visual language that is you, that is recognizable as you. So that means, of course, a logo, your, that your color scheme is always the same so that people can recognize you. If you, had look, if you look at my content feed, whenever I post something uh, that has an image to it, I create the image in uh, PowerPoint and it always has the same color, it always has the same font, it always has the same visual language and that makes me recognizable. Of course, all the videos have another, the, the, the color is there as well, as well as the logo. So I think the topic of personal brand is important. I'm not one of those personal brand bashers. I very much believe in it. But especially as you're starting out, really focus on adding value. I know it sounds trite. I know it's overused and everybody says that. Sometimes the reason why everybody says it is because it's true. So that, that would be my advice for building a personal brand on LinkedIn. And with that, I hope you got some value out of this and I wish you a great rest of the week and I'll talk to you next week, next Tuesday. The State of Client Acquisition is a Content360 production. Music by Gavin Knox Grand. To sign up for alerts and to submit written and audio questions, go to stateofclientacquisition.com. Unless I announce it otherwise, the live podcast is recorded on Wednesdays each week at 7 p.m. Central European Time, that's 6 p.m. UK Time, 1 p.m. Eastern, and 10 a.m. Pacific. And you can always join by going to www.talktomichael.com. That's Michael without an E. But if you sign up at the podcast page, you'll get the link in an email each week. I'll talk to you in the next episode. Fire.